Habari Ghani, Ujamaa, Cooperative Economics. What's the news on this fourth day of Kwanzaa? We are broadcasting from the archives July 10th, 2012, uh, like a reverse. This is 2021. And today we're speaking with uh, Dr. Ticia Evans and Ms. Tiana Jones Bay about the Ross Dance Company's second annual Praise Dance Festival uh, in Davis, July 7, 2012. And, and then we uh, jump to Mr. Jesse Brooks, who joins us to talk about the debut on PBS's Frontline World. Uh, award-winning filmmaker Renata Simons or Simone's Endgame, AIDS in Black America. And uh, I'm sure you can still locate that. Um, unfortunately, uh, still relevant film as people in the black community continue to contract HIV disease and AIDS, um, which is uh, a pandemic that is continuing uh, on top of a new pandemic, uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and then we close with a really wonderful conversation interview um, from, I think, 2009 with uh, Rochelle Farrell, singer, composer, musician, who was in town in July 2012 in San Francisco. So without ado, uh, enjoy. Um, I was reading, um, Dr. Liza. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. Wanda'spicks.asmnetwork.org. Tune in Wednesday, 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays, 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time. This is a black arts and culture site. We will be exploring the African diaspora via the writing, performance, both musical and theatrical, film and stage, as well as the visual arts of Africans in the diaspora and those influenced by these aesthetic forms of expression. I'm interested in the political and social ramifications of art on society, specifically movements supported by these artists and their forebearers. It is my claim that the artists are the true revolutionaries. Their work honest and filled with raw, unedited passion. They are true heroes. Ashe. So remember, visit us on Wednesdays 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on wandaspix.asmnnetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks. Oh, we have an exciting show planned. Um, we're joined in the studio by two women um, to talk about uh, a gospel. Um, a gospel. Um, see, um, Dr. Evans, um, what's the name of the program that's going to be happening tomorrow in Sacramento? Yes. yes, Ross Dance Company is presenting the second annual Sacramento Praise Dance Festival. Right, yeah, and I know there are a lot of people <laughs> like me that didn't know about the first one. So I'm really happy that you were able to join us on such short notice, you and uh, Miss Jones Day, to talk about 
this exciting program. Um, let me tell you, uh, tell our audience a little bit about both of you, and then you can tell us about, you know, the praise dance uh, genre of of movement and mm-hmm. and in your company, uh, as well as this extravaganza, which is going to be um, hosting many many uh, companies. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I don't know how to pronounce your first name, um, Dr. Evans. How do you say it again? Tisha. Tisha. <laughs> Dr. Tisha <laughs> Evans is the co-founder, co-owner, and, and she and founded she founded uh, Ross Dance Company in 2005. So you're about seven years old. Yes, we are. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. How large is your company? The professional company, we have a total of three professional dancers, and we rehearse weekly, and the repertoire that we put on is what you'll see at the festival. Uh, and then we have our our committee staff, which is made up of five individuals, and then we have several volunteers that help out every year with our event. So it's definitely probably a group of 10 to 12 people. And and you received your your bachelor's uh, of arts in psychology and dance from UC Berkeley, and they've got a really fine program. Uh, And you received your doctorate in clinical psychology from California School of Professional Psychology. Whoa, what a combination! (laughs) (laughs) It is indeed. (laughs) And you're also a dancer. Um, You've uh, danced. Uh, for over 15 years in jazz, modern hip-hop, and praise dance. Okay, cool. And you chair the committee for the local praise dance conference and festivals, which you created. Uh, Your choreography has appeared in Oakland, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and a variety of churches in California. And, um, excuse me, um, didn't know this was on. and um, your mission is to use dance as a way to spread the gospel and exalt Christ with excellence. Mm-hmm. And then we're also joined by Mrs. Uh, Tiana Jones Bay, and she's been with your company for four years, and uh, and you're the director of the Children's Conference. Hmm, what mm-hmm. is the Children's Conference? Uh, yeah, so we have, in addition to the adults <clears throat> that we serve every year, we have uh, a smaller conference for the children ages 7 to 11 where they get to come and learn some dance technique and we talk about you know uh, bible scriptures that were pertain to praise dancing and kind of just talk about a little bit about what it means to be a praise dancer for them in their lives and how they can apply it Um, and then we teach them choreography and this year they had the the conference that we had in oakland the participants had an opportunity to minister in the in the Oakland Festival from the choreography that they learned the day before. So it was really exciting, and we always get a great bunch of kids that are just, you know, it's so inspiring how on fire they are for the Lord at such a young age and to see the talents being developed so early. Ah, so it's a parallel conference. Was so that also happening uh, in Sacramento? Could you mention no, uh, not, not this year? Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead, Jesus. Oh, yeah. We don't have a conference in Sacramento. Uh, we have our children's adult conference in Oakland and then adult conference and teenage conference in L.A. where all the the dancers are grouped together. Oh, okay. So this is just a concert on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Okay. You can just watch and just enjoy. Yeah. 
stands and uplift Christ at the same time. And when they are able to see that, just to see like a little light turn on in them and um, to be able to kind of mold and shape and guide that and and, and really strengthen and build their talents um, so that they will continue to kind of plant seeds and, and start with the foundation so they can build upon it and grow. And, you know, it just helps them be, I think, more well-rounded individuals as a whole as well as strong praise dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, Dr. Evans, um, why don't mm-hmm. you add to that definition, and then I have a question. It sounds as if um, praise dance is, because you mentioned that the style it, it sort of crosses different different types of um, of dance, and it sounds like it's the intention. Um, behind yes. the movement that makes it praise versus just out for a good time? Yes, I I thought Tiana did an excellent job answering that. I completely agree with her as far as the purpose of praise dance. Like she said, you can use different styles, but it's really the purpose and the intention and the quality behind it. It's not just, you know, regular dance, but it's a type of worship and a type of praise and a type of celebration. So it's definitely more powerful because you're you're sharing your love for Christ through dance. So just to see the kids and to see adults and older adults use this type of art to praise God is really a wonderful sight to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking that um, other other um spiritual traditions also have 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 praise dance and they might not necessarily be praising um the creator uh under or by the names that others might might know uh, i think about some of the orisha traditions i think actually not some of them but all of them and there's there's a a sacred um aspect to to the movement you know that involves um, songs as well as dance, mm-hmm. and um, and I was wondering um, if you could talk about this whole tradition of of praise dance, and as uh, as a company founder and um, presenter, um, sort of what's the thinking around your choreography? Yes, as far as my choreography goes, it first starts with praying and really asking and seeking God, what is it, what message do you want us to achieve and to and to really deliver to the community? And this, uh, this season, we had our particular piece called The Greatest Gift, and God just really answered my prayers about every part of the piece, and it was just amazing to have the Holy Spirit speak to me in that way about who's doing which role, what type of music to do, what type of lighting to do, and what type of movement, which stems from contemporary jazz, that's the vocabulary that's being used, and also even what type of video to incorporate. As as, as Ross, God really uses us to, you know, challenge uh our, our movement and to push praise dance even further and so we incorporate video and theatrics as well as dance in our piece and so the first part really starts with praying and seeking God and what his purpose is for each piece that we create and Ross just really stems from that um, each year we have a very clear 
purpose and instruction from God and the dancers that I work with, uh, including Tiana, Lauren, Eric, they do an amazing job com- making that vision come to life in that ministry. Uh, so, Ross, we really appreciate doing the professional part, but as well as the ministry part, which is working with a lot of different churches and, and ministers as far as praise dance ministers and uh, having classes and conferences to really strengthen their skills as praise dancers. Sometimes with praise dance, uh, dancers aren't always able to be professionally trained or take ongoing classes. And so part of our mission and part of our role as praise dance is we equip a lot of these praise dance ministers in their ministry so that they can really really spread the gospel and do it with excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. So talk about this um, big concert um, tomorrow in Sacramento and, and let our audience know where where it's happening and who has been invited and how um, the annual uh, concert, which is uh, the second annual tomorrow, uh, expands on on the vision um, that was started last year of the concert that had its debut last year. Yes, so the second annual Sacramental Praise Dance Festival will be tomorrow at Veterans Memorial Theater in Davis, and the event starts at 7 p.m., doors open at 6.30, and the community can purchase their tickets online by going to Ross dance.com or they can give our office a call and we're really excited about the program we have a total of nine acts we have valley bible church pfbc uh, victory and praise all the way from modesto we have first baptist coming from pittsburgh uh, we have kira uh, who's coming from los banos uh, we have Ross Dance, who's going to be also dancing. We have Center of Praise. And, Tiana, am I missing anyone else? Mm, I don't think I don't so. Think so. so. Yeah. Yeah. And then also we have On One Accord from Elk Grove and oh. With Grace from Elk Grove. Uh, so it's a full group, and these groups are coming from all over the area just to praise God. And uh, the event, this will be our second year doing Sacramento. We did one in Oakland uh, two weeks ago at Laney College. was sold out, and it was just a great celebration of worshiping Christ. And then in a couple weeks, we go to L.A., and we'll be having our Praise Dance Conference there July 28th, as well as our Praise Dance Festival on July 29th in Linwood. And if anyone wants more details, they can definitely give us a call or visit our website at rossdance.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, um, Tiana, uh, were you um, talk about? Uh, are you are you both going to be dancing? Yes. Oh, okay. So, so talk about um, you know being both you know in front of the camera and off camera. I mean, your choreograph, you know, your choreographing and uh, and your you know, your teaching and, and then your dancing. So to talk about sort of wearing these various hats and, and what you're looking forward to most in this particular um, um, installation of, of the conference, not the conference, excuse me, the festival. And, um, yeah, and, and do you have any any work uh, premiering uh, in this particular festival? 
Um, I don't. The, all the choreography that Ross is doing this time uh, is is from Tisha. Um, but yeah, you talk about wearing multiple hats. It's definitely a labor of love. I mean, it is a commitment that I'm passionate about. You know, in both. You know, I think Ross Dance does a great job of like coupling my passion for one praise dancing and and ministering in that respect and also like encouraging and supporting others and working with kids so it's just kind of like all encompassing for me so yes I mean although we have intense rehearsals like Tisha is not playing when it's time to (laughs) get the stuff uh, done and then you know on the flip side organizing everything and making sure that the conferences um, are worthwhile for the people to come out and that it's you know quality and 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 fun. Um, it's I mean it's it's a labor of love. It's something that I feel passionate about. That I feel called to do. So it's um, you know it's wonderful and it's wonderful to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so talk some more about um, about the, the praise dance. Um, I hear you. You calling? You're saying you know. Um, it seems like it's coming from the Christian tradition. And an earlier question was looking at um, praise dance as uh, being a part of other traditions. I was wondering if you, you could speak to that, uh, Dr. Evans. Uh, praise dance being a part of other other traditions, tra- traditions as well that are not Christian based. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. As far as what other communities or what other religions, how they incorporate praise dance. I'm not too familiar with that. I know that, you know, the Jewish community um, also takes pride as well as using dance to to worship. And I know that other cultures uh, use that to, to praise their own gods. As far as details in that, I'm not very familiar. I usually just keep my focus on, you know, with the Christianity and just really uh, using the biblical references as far as David and Mary and other uh, uh, figures in the Bible and how they use praise dance and how the Holy Spirit wants us to use praise dance really as a framework for for what we do. Mm-hmm. Right. So sorry, not able to answer that too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um Tiana, do you have any comments? Because you you're, you mentioned um, the different types of of dance genres, and mm-hmm. how um, it's not it's not the form; it's the intention. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, mm-hmm. uh, are you familiar with uh, some of the uh, Pan African um, spiritual traditions and how mm-hmm. um, they use dance to praise the Creator? Mm-hmm. So I, um, before Dancing with Ross, I danced uh, for I think two seasons with uh, Afro-Brazilian Company. Um, oh, yeah. And which one? And so I am familiar. Um, Aguas de Bahias oh, yeah. with Tanya Santiago. Oh, mm-hmm. she's great. She's getting ready to do something um, in August. I mean, they're having rehearsals now. I noticed <laughs> dance mission. Oh, yeah, so I, I was able. I am familiar a little bit with your, what you're talking about with the Orishas, and and it, it is like you know specific movements come um, represent their different deities, and and it all has purpose. So I think it's it can be similar. I think like the the difference with praise dance for us in Christian faith is you know that it's about Jesus and and representing ministering the the gospel of Jesus Christ through your dance moves. So you can use 
you know, I find myself, and Tisha Yelp likes to use a lot of African movement also. You can use African movement, you can use hip-hop, you can, you know, use jazz and ballet. Um, so, so, so praise dance can encompass a variety of types of movement, but like you said, the intention and the purpose is to is to give the people Jesus Christ. I think that's where the difference lies. Because um, certainly every culture has their own form of dance, which is great, and I try to like learn about all the different forms of dance and how it's used in different cultures because it can't. Because God is not in a box. Like you can use mm-hmm. you can use you know anything for his good work and he's given us creativity and he's given us these other things and so why not use it to you know uplift him Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah i certainly see um how um praise dance and particularly um the work that you um ross dance company is doing around these conferences and these festivals which is really awesome uh as a way to uh to sort of bring community together Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk a bit about um, about the uh, the music that you use uh, to illustrate or to accompany uh, these visions that um, that you ask. Sounds like they're they're divinely inspired visions, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Doctor Evans. Uh, talk about mm-hmm. the music and um, and some of the uh, artists that you um, that you find yourself. I don't know this particular piece that you choreographed for um for this festival and I believe you said it's around it's in the jazz genre of mm-hmm. of of um of dance. Is it an artist that you, you like and, and that that you're some of the pieces or do you have multiple artists that uh, that you're using for this to, to to dance to for this particular piece and what and uh does it have a name and if you already told us I forgot <laughs> so tell me <laughs> No problem. Yeah, so the piece is called The Greatest Gift, and it's actually a combination of four different artists. And so the first piece is uh, I Want to Believe by Kirk Franklin, and then the second piece uh, is done to uh, a combination of drumming, which I really, really love. Uh, cause a lot of times you'll see praise dance done to gospel music, but I feel just like what Tiana said, gave us all these these different uh, things to use, such as music and, and style, so not why not tap into them all? And so the second piece, uh, it, it uses drumming to really bring the piece alive. Uh, and then the third piece is uh, I Need You Now by Smokey Norfolk, and it's a wonderful part of the entire piece because it's really talking about being desperate for God and knowing that you cannot do this on your own and just having him pour into you. And so it's a very soulful and very uh, endearing piece done to I Need You Now. And then the fourth song ends with character and it's free, or not free, I'm sorry, it's You Are. I just love her as an artist. And it's upbeat, it's tempo, it's up-tempo, we're really getting the crowd involved. We have some African movement that's incorporated as well as some jazz movement. And so I typically use different artists. Uh, this year, I think, is probably one of the first times I actually incorporated drumming, which I think all of us were, were really excited about. So it really takes you through a variety of motions uh, from being 
just really in the presence of God and just wanting that closeness and, you know, sometimes not knowing how to always get there, but knowing that you want to get there, but, you know, having that struggle and sometimes in our walk and then really ending with this idea of, God, I know you're there, even though I might have some ups and downs, I know you've got my back and I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be strong through this walk with Christ. And so it's a, it's a really touching piece and I'm really excited to have the dancers minister it on Saturday. Sounds really wonderful. Ah, do you ever have live music? Not yet, but I am praying on that. I want to have live. I think if I have live music, I'll probably want to have live drumming. We had live drumming at our conference for most of the day, and it just brings out a different quality of movement. And so one day we will have some live music. Oh, that, that'll be really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you ever... Um, in the praise dance, and I'm just thinking about the African spiritual tradition uh, of sort of being captured by the spirit. Do you ever have a, a is there ever a part of the conference, let's say, because I'm not sure if, if you could do that in the festival, where um, people can actually create right there? Uh, I think that would really be cool if you if you had live music. So that sounds like that might have been possible at the at the conference if you had drumming. Um, so is that is that ever um, a part of any of the programs that that you and Ross Dance hosts? Yes, as far as the conference, it was uh, okay. we had live drumming. Makita was able to grace her grace us with her presence, and she also had a guest. So we had live drumming, and there was actually an exercise, the Kwanzaa workshop, which I lead, uh, and the exercise was to to first, you know, pray to God about what the whole purpose of your piece, because they're going to create a few eight counts in just 30 minutes, and they were working with different uh, dancers from different ministries, and their whole goal was how do you how do you get connected to God's vision as far as what He wants you to deliver through your movement, and then how do you produce that effectively? And so they did a 30-minute exercise where they're working with six or seven people that they just first met that day, and they came up with the beat of what they wanted. They gave it to Nikita. They were very clear about the vision God had given them, and they were able to minister in less than 30 minutes on the spot, creating a piece and working with people that they typically don't work with but have to, but share the same goal and share the same vision. And that was amazing to see. Unfortunately, we were not able to do that at our concert, but at our conference to be able to have that interactive learning and to really have them use the skills they learn on the spot was really awesome. Mm-hmm. And they also had the portion, Tisha, where it was just like free worship where they come out in the circle as the drums were going and they were just kind of letting the spirit freely move. And I thought that was also powerful. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so, um, in closing, I wanted to know if um, perhaps um, each of you could talk about uh, because um, Dr. Evans, your you know your credentials um, are not necessarily what one might think about as the credentials for a person that's founder of a dance company and <laughs> uh, you know puts on you know a praise dance conference and a festival and hmm, interesting all this mm-hmm. clinical psych and so we've got the dance and we've got the praise and then we've got the 
the mental stuff happening there. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you can talk about sort of your your journey, and uh, and then um, <laughs> uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Tiana Jones, I want you to talk about about the importance of, of dance in your life um, uh, since it seems like you've been doing it for a while. Yeah, so uh, basically for me, I, I wear two hats, and God has been so gracious to give me the time and the resources to do it. You know, people ask me, well, how do you how do you balance the two? And my answer is always the same, through God's grace and his mercy and for him just keeping his hand over my life. So during the day, I have a, another job. I'm a clinical psychologist at a hospital, and so that's a passion I have with just working with people and just helping them each day uh, be able to strengthen their own mental health. So it's in a way it's like a ministry because just assisting people to become more whole with their souls and with, with their mental health. And so that's one other hat that I wear that keeps me busy and keeps me on my toes. And then the second hat I wear is with Ross Dance and working with my staff and with my company members and doing a lot of community outreach. And even though they sound kind of separate, they're in a way it's similar because it's ministry work and working with people and pouring into people. And so I, sometimes I pull my psychology hat in with dance and and with, with the, the type of things I'm able to do with dance and being expressive, sometimes I pull that in with my clinical work and you know, teaching people how to open up and be vulnerable. So I'm able to interestingly use both skills uh, so that it can it can help people. So I, I thoroughly enjoy both passions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And um, Tiana? Yeah, so uh, I believe the question was kind of how dance has played a role in my, my life, throughout mm-hmm. my life. Yeah. Um, so definitely dance has been a huge part of my life um just I've always had a passion for it I you know I didn't start out in praise dance I started out just with jazz and tap and hip-hop and you know as you know went into Afro-Brazilian and it's just always I feel like there's always been a pull on my life to come back like when I discovered praise dance um in college uh, when I first got saved and was kind of like oh wow what is this this is awesome I can continue to dance and 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 praise and praise the lord and so that's when i founded um co-founded anointed vessels of praise at usc and that was such a blessing and just since then this has always just been a pull on me even though you know life happens and, and trying to almost trying to to walk away and god saying nope you're still called to do this you're still called to do this like i have uh two beautiful kids now and, and still you know married with two kids and and though that life can be, um, you know, also demanding and consuming and keep you full and busy. There's still this pull to 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 minister and praise dance. And it's also therapeutic for me, for myself. Like, it helps me um, just feel more, I don't know, focused and connected to the Lord. And, and I kind of am able to, whatever's going on in life, come back to it and, and it really... Like I said, it's a blessing and, and, and helps me. Um, so it's definitely a huge part. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes, really great. Um, so congratulations, um, you know, on your second annual Praise Dance Festival. And um, uh, Dr. Evans, can you give us the details one more time? 
Yes, no problem. It's going to be tomorrow, our Sacramento Praise Dance Festival at Veterans Memorial Theater. The event will start at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at rossdance.com, and that's R-O-S-S dance.com. And we would love for everyone to come out and just uh, praise and worship God with us. <laughs> All right, super. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, have fun um, at the festival. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it, but definitely um, want to get connected. Well, I think I am connected now to your circuit, so um, mm-hmm. <laughs> if I can't make it to Sacramento, then maybe I can catch the third annual, uh, yeah. as well as the conference mm-hmm. when you come back up to Northern California. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Wanda, so much for having us. We appreciate oh. it. Oh, you're yes, welcome. thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And keep up the great, wonderful dance work. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Peace and blessings. Uh, we are joined in the studio by one of my favorite activists, Mr. Jesse Brooks. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> good morning, Wanda. I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I am so excited. You know, it's like I was so excited. I thought you were the director of this new film. Oh, I know. Uh, Endgame for AIDS in a Black America. What a wonderful work. Oh, my God. Um, uh, Renata Simone has just, ooh, it's just such a fabulous sort of wide-ranging work that uh, features you as well as others, and it's going to be debuting on Frontline, on PBS Frontline, on uh, Tuesday, July 10th, and um, people can check the local listings, but um, one of the times is 10 o'clock, but um, I'm not sure if it's 10 o'clock. Is it 10 o'clock Pacific time? Yes, it is. Okay, right, because I know sometimes they can do it so that it's um, the same time throughout the country, and and then and the, what's really great about Frontline is that afterwards you can watch it online, so that's even great. But you want to be tuning in with everybody else, so it's going to be really cool. So uh, why don't you talk to us about um, about Endgame, AIDS in Black America, because, um, you know, as an activist, that's one of the, uh, I don't know, maybe one of the primary uh, messages that that you have been speaking to for as many years as I've known you right? <laughs> about ending it. <laughs> I was like, okay, you don't have to get infected. You don't have to die if you are infected. Um, yeah, talk about this wonderful work and, and your work and how okay. the two sort of coalesce and come together in Thank such a you. wonderful way here. Thank you, Wanda. Um, so evidently you did see, you, you viewed it and it affected <laughs> you like it affected me. I, I think uh, Renata did a wonderful job of, of weaving a story. And the story she told was HIV and AIDS affecting people that weren't in the media's attention in the early years, and which were, were black people along aside white people. And the media attention was on white gay men. And over here, and so it tells the story of this happening right across the bridge in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but then right across the bridge in Oakland, it was it was happening. And, and Renata breaks down the truth that the fourth patient that was discovered in L.A. was black. Yeah, I know. I'm like, I never heard that before. 
Right. I thought everyone who was infected in those early years, everyone who had died these horrific um, deaths because, you know, the medical profession didn't know how to treat it, I thought they were all gay white men. Well, we all did. I know. Because of the images that the media um, portrayed. And also there was, they even say there was no mention of race, Mm -hmm. which was not intentionally, but that's what happened. And so because of that initial um, face of HIV, us as black people were thought that we weren't at risk. And it was easy for us to be in denial Mm -hmm. about it happening here. As I saw so many people die of HIV and AIDS here in Oakland in those days, and we just didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I saw so many people die, and they called it everything else. People were more proud to say cancer than HIV because it's such a stigma. And so as a fact, we find ourselves, in 1998, Alameda being the first county, first um, city, Oakland, declaring a state of emergency in African-American communities. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And and it's we're still in a state of an emergency in 2012. And I'm like, oh, that that's is ridiculous. Horrible. Yeah, it's really horrific. Yeah, yeah. And and in the um, in the film. You mentioned how your brother, um, and those are some great photographs that you share with the director. Thank you. Wow, they're so beautiful. You 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 uh, you favor your brother as well. Um, yeah, that your brother your brother died from AIDS. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and how that really frightened you um, quite a bit. Well, not just my brother. Mm-hmm. You know, who was a a. A, a man that had sex with men, a gay man, but so many of my friends that I, as a young gay man, danced alongside in the clubs of Oakland, I saw them die. Even when they had the first drug, AZT, they continued to die. So when I was diagnosed in 1993, I just knew it was a death sentence. And, and and it wasn't, because a couple of years later, they came out with the regimen of the drug cocktails, which changed everything, where people started living with HIV and AIDS because of these drugs that, like in the film, Magic, that's what he says. I, I, I'm not cured of HIV. I'm only healthy because I take my meds every day. So these meds came and turned everything around, but... In my head, and in the visuals I saw in Oakland was once you were HIV positive diagnosed, you were dead. And many people still think that, and it's not true. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, it looked like um, the director was uh, interviewing you in your home. Um, how how did she come? I mean, you're a real high-profile person. Uh, you've got a column in the Oakland Post. Um, you've got all these different um, associations that you're a part of, um, and uh, you know, national, well, local, you know, civic organization as well as national, international um, organization. Is that how she knew you? Because you're like so famous, or yeah, how did she come to 
<laughs> to interview you um, along with some of the other, um, you know, folks here in the San Francisco Bay Area, like Joe Hawkins and Bishop um, Yvette Flunder and some of the other people that I recognized in the film. How did how did she? Because the film actually, uh, this director, uh, she is is an expert in 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 covering this particular topic and and focusing on the black community in particular, you know, in Endgame, uh, is is sort of uh, a direction that her work was going in all the time. I mean, because of the series that she produced for um, for uh, PBS. Uh, a three-part series that she does. Fonny, could you um, tell us how how she came to know you and uh, and and have you in the film? Well, I, I don't know really how she came to to how it put together, but people <laughs> told her about me and they kind of looked me up. But it wasn't hard, like you said, to find me because you know I'm on posters. Mm-hmm. With um, saying that I'm HIV positive, I'm on posters. Uh, with my face, I'm on posters with my niece that's talking about how we as negative people, positive people can fight HIV. And a lot of people still have that stigma, and, and, and so I do it to break down that fear and to show people the face of HIV. So so those two connected, the face of HIV, and that I'm on posters is how she came to find me. Mm-hmm. You're right, Renata um, is, has started... Her work worked way back in 1989, like she was one of the first to do a national series on HIV. Um, I think it was the AIDS Quarterly with Peter Jennings. And then she did this um, award-winning film, Age of AIDS, 25 years of um, HIV, really in a, um, extensive piece about the science. And so this, she wanted it to be different. And like I said, because of the lack of media attention on the African-American community, the the denial, the stigma, that we find ourselves with high transmission rates in our community and still no one's talking about it. And so we find ourselves that half of the infections each year, which nationally are like 56,000, are African-Americans, women, men, youth. And and so we are the face of HIV. So that's what the film is about. Mm-hmm. But it's also the end game. We, are, we have came so far after 30 years of not knowing what this disease is to finally knowing the science of it, how, how to stop it with the new drugs. Like I said, in 1998, you, you, they... They um, realized that it, they needed, like, three drugs to stop the disease in three different ways because the drug is that smart, and that changed everything. But even after that, there's so much um, technology and, and knowledge that we know now that we feel, and, and I feel, that we have all the tools that we need to eradicate HIV. hmm and right. we just have to use them and get people tested. Mhm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh when I was the film is it's um it's it's really um she um the director uh is has 
a wide spectrum of, of people that are infected and how they become infected. And I think one of the moving stories, uh, two of them actually, was the the story of the woman who who meets her husband um, at church. Yeah. And and he is infected, but he doesn't tell her. And they have yeah. all of these wonderful. Um, marriage counseling sessions with the pastor and um and and he never discloses at right. all and and then she gets sick <laughs> and she just sort of stumbles upon the information and I think wow that is so amazing and she's an older woman she's got grown kids she's got right. grandchildren right. uh so it's like oh it doesn't just she have to be young God, people you know? yeah yeah okay. and and then the pastor he thinks you know this this woman met this man in my church, like, uh-oh, you know, like, what do I do with that, and how do I handle that, because this is a member of the church, and he needs to be ministered to, and then I have to, like, how do I bracket, you know, my, you know, my anger with him for what he did to another member of the congregation, whom I love equally, so that, that's, that was like, wow, what a story, and then the other story that sort of brought up um, well, Michelle Alexander. Well, I want to speak oh. to that, okay. to Nell's okay. story, is who okay. you're talking about. Her name is Nell. Nell, okay. And I wish Renata was on, on here with us because what Renata talks about when you talk about that story is that that Nell's story is not unique. She hears it in southern cities. She hears it in cities in the east. And, you know, so everywhere that... In the black community, there's a story like Nell of an older woman, like my mama, who maybe have lost her husband. And in the past, you know, you would look in the church for a partner. And so she found this deacon in the church. And like you said, to her horror, discovered that she not only was HIV positive, but that he hadn't known about it and not told her. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of it is the pink elephants in our community that that contribute to this disease. Uh, we don't want to talk about sex, even though we have babies everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we got to, and, and anybody that has sex and that's older woman needs to know that you're at risk for HIV. It only takes you having sex with an HIV-positive person one time. And today, because of the the advances in medicines, you don't you can't tell a person is HIV-positive by looking at them. And, you know, and again, you don't have to become HIV-positive if you just heed the warning that anybody that has sex, it doesn't have to be a prostitute, a drug user. Nail tells the story it could be a... Older woman, God-fearing woman that goes to church mm-hmm. and believes in God, right. but just brought up in the old school way to to just trust, and trust is killing us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking about how um, I don't know if you still have to, but at one point when you were going to uh, to to get married, you had to get a blood test. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess you don't have to do that anymore because if you had to get a checkup and a blood test before you got the license, then you would know about the health status of the partner, the person that you're going to be marrying. Um, and then I was also, when you mentioned um, 
nail, well, when I mentioned nail story, then you gave us some more background on it. The Black Coalition on AIDS in San Francisco, they have a program um, of a sort of a support group for women, older women, right. who have been infected. Um, you know, these women are all like in their 40s and 50s, right. and and they became infected because a lot of them. Um, because they're past their childbearing years, don't think about uh, contraceptive, well, not contraceptive, don't look, think about barriers because they can't get pregnant. And so they're not using protection, and then they're meeting men. A lot of men, a lot of black men are incarcerated, and and, and, uh, and that's another great story that this, this film tells uh, about what's going on with HIV and AIDS behind the prison walls and and that one prison, Fulton, oh, my goodness. Right. Uh, yeah, and I'm like, and, and one of the, the, you know, the doctor that's interviewed and one of the, the patients talks about how no one had cared about his, his health status prior to meeting this doctor, and he's an African-American right. doctor, and, and he's, you know, talking about how he's going to, you know, prescribe this medicine so that the man's T-cell count could could be built up from you know actually doubled from where it is to where it could be, um, and then you know these men's men get out of prison and they come back in the community and they meet these great women and sometimes they don't disclose and these women become infected and that's the support group that Black Coalition on AIDS um, that's 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 what they're addressing these infected older women that never thought <laughs> that they would be the uh, part of this this growing face of, of HIV and AIDS in our community. Well, you brought up some really good points for women especially. I mean, because the disease is so different for women. It affects women in so many different ways. And, and, it, and, and actually affecting a woman, it affects so many other people because women are caretakers. So HIV uniquely affects women so so much harsher, affecting the whole family and interrupting the whole family. But you talked about having a blood test at marriage, you yeah. know. And so I don't know either if they still do blood tests, but what I know now is that anybody that wants to have a partner, engages in sex, should get a blood test, should get an HIV test together. Mm-hmm. That should just be common. I don't care how old you are. And so that's the thing we have to change. Like, it cannot be the old school way of of this mating game. Mm-hmm. You can't just meet people now and go have sex and get married without the precaution that really needs to happen. And actually, um, you know, someone said that, that they wish that was more in the movie, that how do you stay HIV negative? Mm-hmm. Should have been he felt like should have been discussed more in the movie because there is so clear ways to stay negative today. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and who knows? Um, you know, uh, the director has has produced lots of films, and that might be the next one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but thought, you know, yeah. I want people to get the message that you do not have to become positive. No, not at all. Not you at do all. Not. And, and you do not have to stop having sex. You do not have to stop mm-hmm. living. But you do have to change the way that you have been doing it in the past. Yeah, and, you know, and, and Jesse, maybe that's the film you need to make. You're right. I, I, I'm up for the challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was thinking also, as you mentioned, um, uh, how, it, you know, HIV and AIDS diagnosis is not a death sentence. I thought about the young people that 
that are singing and rapping uh, in in the film. These two boys, young men, who um, their mothers died because their mothers right. were infected with the disease, and and they were born infected, right. and 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 they have as a part of their healing process have forgiven their mothers. I'm like, wow, this is just so beautiful. And uh, and then they and then they talk about you know relationships and and I just love the young man whose grandmother raised him uh-huh. and how it's such a loving loving family and just just to get it out out in the open around the stigma that's attached to this this diagnosis and to this disease that affects one's life um you know she just would just say right off the bat um you know we 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 eat with you know with uh you know with our with my child and and if you you have any problem with that <laughs> then you need to just right. you know you just just go on cuz uh we're going to all be eating together we're going to all be doing blah, blah blah together and and he grew up with such a a great sense of who he is and that he wasn't his disease i think that's that's such a beautiful story don't you i i i actually the young people that deal with this disease are my hero mm you know, for me, you know, it is a challenge, but it's so so much easier for me at my age to proclaim that I'm HIV positive than a young person to proclaim they're HIV positive and all the peer pressure and the ignorance at that age that sustains. So I, I really look at them as my heroes to put themselves out there to empower themselves. Um, I feel that young man is blessed. Because not everybody, not everybody's family has that reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's horror stories of people being thrown out their house, and I'm talking about youth, mm-hmm. and, and because they the, the family found out they were HIV positive. Um, there's horror stories of separate eating utensils and just treating people and isolating them. And, you know, what I know, too, is, from the years that isolation and that kind of treatment has killed people, not HIV, mm-hmm. but just being isolated by your family right. and the people you love and, and as we talk about the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, And but this, this young man, um, his his grandmother, yeah. um, you know, because what happened is there were like four children, I believe, in the family uh, when the mother died, right. and they and they were going to put them all in separate foster care, and the grandmother said, "No, we'll I'll just take them," and so she raised her grandchild right. from an infant, um, and yeah, I, I totally I, we I totally agree and know that um, that this is not a story that it's all you know that this particular story is not one that's one that we see often enough. No, we don't. Yeah, but it's it's you know I'm so happy that it's it's there you know in the film so that people can see that this this could be the story. And, and just the self-esteem that that young man had, and I say because of it. Yeah. yeah and, and, and you know, and even before a youth gets positive, we're talking about self-esteem that mm-hmm. really creates the decision-making process. So if you really feel good about yourself, no matter what happens in your life. You can succeed. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And you talk about that yourself, um, you know, going to church and and um, and then getting one of those homophobic sermons and then 
having to leave, and then you get home and nobody talks about it. And exactly. Yeah, and then and then Joe <laughs> Joe Hawkins talks about how his his roommate took him to church, and then as soon as he walks in, the sermon was directed at him. Wow. And and the man puts his hand on Joe's head and tries to exercise exercise the 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 demon or the devil gay something out of him and right. he's like what i mean i was like i can't even imagine such an experience really um, I, I i talk to people and we talk about god and sometimes mm-hmm. that the conversation turns that way mm. you know so we're yeah. talking about people um i don't know still they they're not getting it they're not getting it and still trying to push religion into other there I don't know. They're just not getting it and that was horrific what Joe encountered, you're right. I never had it that severe but wow. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, talk about talk about your family. Um we talked we were talking about self esteem and, and you talk about I mean, you were a model, um you um you were born in Los Angeles, but you claim Oakland as your hometown, um, living here most of your life. Um, you had a love for writing at an early age, and in 1970, while in sixth grade, your work was read on the Phil Donahue show. Um, you were the school president of your class. You're a graduate of Oakland Technical High School, Oakland Tech, as we know. Uh, you remember the National Guard in Fort Dix, New Jersey, from 1981 to 1983. And throughout all of your accomplishments, you write, you struggle with many internal value, battles, including drug addiction and acceptance of your sexuality. Um, and now after overcoming a drug addiction, coming to terms with your sexuality and accepting that you're HIV positive, you now use your voice to educate Oakland's urban communities. And so you've got these various campaigns, um, 2006, HIV Stops With Us, um, I Choose to Disclose campaign, 2011, Billboards in Los Angeles simultaneously in San Francisco and Oakland, um, you are on posters on buses, on Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART. Um, you have this column in the Oakland Post Black Paper. Uh, you were you have a 30-minute docudrama, The Ceremony, which played at the 2006 Black, Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Film Festival. Um, you are among an acting troupe going inside Santa Rita Jail to do unprecedented HIV-AIDS education in May 2010. That was uh, the so Cornerstone Theater Group of Los Angeles performed short plays focusing on HIV and AIDS. And then you're on a lot of boards, Policy Education Review Committee, Alameda Planning Council, Bay Area Regional African American HIV-AIDS State of Emergency Coalition, UC San Francisco Center for AIDS Prevention Studies Advisory Board, um, Alameda AIDS Research Coalition Advisory Board, and so much more. And you're getting ready to go to um, to Washington D.C. for yes. an international AIDS conference. And then you yesterday um, you gave me a copy of this lovely book that could be me, the untold study of, story of HIV in Oakland. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I just gave a whole lot about you. And coming back to the, the self-esteem <laughs> and wow, your family. So <laughs> well, well, it took a lot to get to where I am today. And, uh-huh. you know, and I don't mind telling my struggle. And um, It was an internal battle is what I finally realized, that 
all my life, like I said, I grew up in a family with my father, my mother, and I always knew I was gay, but I had a fear of talking about it. In the movie, I, in the end game, I talk about how one of my, the uncle, my favorite uncle that I love, we were driving down the street, and I remember, and so I know, knowing I'm, I'm having these feelings for men, but don't know who to talk to, and he goes, you see that person right there? And it was an obviously gay man, and he says, I hate them. And he said it with such venom, feeling, and emotions that I was so crushed and hurt. So, of course, you don't. Say I, you don't come out and say I'm gay, you know, for me. And, and But that's who I was. And so it took drug addiction. I lost my first partner to a homicide, and that's when I went into drug addiction. But part of it was just dealing with internally who I am and being proud of who I am. And it took me almost dying, Wanda, with the drugs to really want to live. And, and want to give my life to God. And it made me not care about what anybody thought, and that's when I finally realized it really was never about what people thought. It was about what I thought of what a gay man is. Hmm. And what a gay man is to me is me, a man of character, who is honest, hardworking, dependable, walks up in his community with his head held high, and is an example for young people. That's what a gay man is. Yeah. So it's not a, I had to turn it from a negative definition of what the world said it was to what I knew it to be, who I am. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, I empowered myself. So, And the more that I respect myself and I'm proud of myself, I, that comes off and you get that respect in, from other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so I don't mind telling my story because we all go through self-identity in different ways, mm-hmm. and we just all have to come to that point of self-empowerment to know that we are wonderfully made in God's image and we can do wonderful things. And, and other people will stop your dream, your your hopes, if you allow them. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it comes back to what do you think who you are? Right. And it comes from my foundation. You know, my mother, although we had differences in belief, she had unconditional love for me through it all. Mm-hmm. You know, and my family, even now, we're learning to talk about those pink elephants mm-hmm. <laughs> that we wouldn't talk about through the years because of me mm-hmm. pointing to those elephants. We need to talk about them to heal. Yeah. What about your brother, Um you know, you have you have a brother who um, is also a man who loves men. Um, you know, your deceased brother. So, was seemed like that might have been a, a point of reference and also maybe a comfort because he understood, if no one else did. I, again, it was so much internal homophobia. We didn't even recognize mm-hmm. the reality of who we were to be able to celebrate that together. Oh. So we just kind of hid. And didn't talk oh. about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. wow. Huh. Wow, yeah. So that deep huh. kind of homophobia, huh. uh, even we knew each other was gay, but we just yeah. didn't talk about it. Oh, yeah, because you really looked up to your big brother. I huh. did. Oh, I did. wow, wow, that that's really deep. 
it's in it's in our families, it's in our community. I, I I love to quote another activist in the community that you know black gay men are are our community's dirty little secrets. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know we have to start talking and accepting our babies because mm-hmm. yeah. you know I hear a lot of people talk about young people, but I think they want to exclude gay young people, and we have to. Those are our babies too gay or whatever sexuality a person desires, they're still our brothers and our sisters and our babies. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, wow, yeah. Um, I was thinking about uh, Gary Harmon, um, wonderful activist who is no longer with us, um, whom I, I called a friend and, and mentor. Um, and he, he talked about uh, within within our community um, in the early years, Alameda County didn't have any any HIV AIDS services, and so people have to go to San Francisco for services. And and the um, uh, the 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 cultural competency competency of of the, those providing services was really absent. Um, and um, and he you know really worked hard towards um, you know establishing uh, an AIDS office you know here in Alameda County and getting services in Alameda County, and also getting, uh, you know, sort of developing services that were culturally competent for people of African descent and people of other other um, ethnic uh, groups that, you know, particularly around practical and emotional support, and um, and that, that's sort of where the program that um, I, I started, um, the AIDS Volunteer Clearinghouse, came into to, to, um, uh, fruition because we, we looked at uh services for people uh that were that took into consideration their uh their 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 culture and how as a person of let's say you know african descent how we would want to be um assisted um in you know living with this disease or surviving you know um this this uh you know this disease if, you know, we had a person in our family that might have passed. Um, and also with regards to um, preventing, you know, the transmission of this disease and keeping people from getting infected um, in the first place. So um, so we've come a long way from that because it's been like, oh, man, 20, 25, 30 years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So things have gotten a lot better. Um, another aspect um of the film, and um, hope you, do you have a few more minutes? I do, and I I wanted to talk about the International AIDS Conference. Oh yeah, whenever please. you get time. Yeah, yeah, please. Um, be, before we go to that, I wanted I wanted to um, talk about this uh, the paraphernalia law that I hadn't heard of <laughs> that was so that was you know talked about with these um, I think these were these were doctors um, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and a place called the Bluff. And they were doing some serious needle exchange, and it's, right, it's, not, right. it was, it's not legal there. But what, the woman who exchanged over 100 needles, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of dirty needles. Right. And that is so great that she can get clean needles. And then they were also doing HIV, um, uh, the rapid test right there um, on site, and and then there was support, you know, for the person. One way or the other, you know, if it was negative, there was support, and if it was positive, there was support with regards to the diagnosis. And I just thought that just sort of spoke 
go well to um, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and Age of Colorblindness, um, her book, which looks at the um, uh, the war on black people. They call it the war right. on drugs, but it was really the war on black people. And right. I'm like, wow, that is such a in-depth sec- segment of of the film. It is just like, ah. So I want you to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, Renata did a great job highlighting um, the need for um, um, legalizing needle exchange everywhere. And, and because it's been proven that it helps people from getting HIV and getting Hep C and, and passing it on, and it's such a um, yeah, it's been a proven program and a good prevention method. But there is a um, entities that want to criminalize it, like you said. Yeah, but no, I was also speaking of the whole thing around the war on drugs, and and how that um, sort oh. of partic- uh, precipitated the the dirty needles because they would have these things called shooting galleries, right. where people would go off the street and they would share needles, um, and they would do their drugs, you know, sort of in these these. I would put quotation marks around safer <laughs> places where I guess they wouldn't get arrested as easily as if they were on the street shooting up. But this really precipitated the spread of of diseases via these dirty needles. Um, but that, you know, is just a part of this whole. And then she shows how, you know, black people, black men in particular, were just being marched into the prison system. And so you're right. You're talking about in the beginning, and I love the way um, the Renata actually puts that together and, and really connects that because HIV and AIDS, the first discovery was in 1981. But, again, like you said, that was the era of the crack addiction mm-hmm. as well. So that helped spread. Um, unprotected sex and, like you said, sharing dirty needles. So back then, it, a lot of ignorance and people and the scientists didn't know a lot. So sharing needles were one of the highest transmission routes. And and like you said, because of the war on drugs and because of the um, reluctance to legalize needle and syringe, so many people got infected trying to hide out. Or, or, or even going in and out of prison. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, yeah. And we're yeah. talking about tattooing is a, a high transmission rate in prison of HIV. Mm-hmm. So not it's not all sex. We're talking about tattooing transmits HIV That's as right. well. That's right, yeah, blood to blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and, and then that warden who said, well, it's a sexually transmitted disease. They don't have sex in prison, so so you can't give condoms to um, to inmates right. to 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 mitigate the spread of the disease because oh, they're not having sex. I'm like, what? Right. What? That's, that's that's so crazy. It's so crazy, and, and and it's so such a lie, and we know it, and yeah. they know it. Yeah. 
yeah. And the doctor says, you know, he asked, he's asked on camera, it's like, of course he's going to say no. He can't give. He's like, no, because if he said he's giving um, inmates condoms, and, you know, um, whether he is or not, he wouldn't be working there anymore. And he was one of the good guys because at least he was treating, you know, the men who are infected with, you know, HIV or AIDS. You know, he was trying to to do what he could in the, in a really compromised medical system because we know the medical system in the um, behind the prison walls is if we if it's if it's if it's worse if it's not good you know when we're not behind prison walls we know that is not really not oh it's like well. double yeah oh yeah it's horrible behind prison walls so when you find a good physician <laughs> you know that's that's definitely rare. Well, that's something that advocates, you know, have been fighting for years, even here locally with Santa Rita Mm -hmm. Jail, is to to provide condoms Mm -hmm. because there is there is sex happening in jails and prisons. Yeah, San Francisco Jail actually has a condom vending machine. Oh, super excellent, excellent. And it's been proven that it 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 works. Mm Mhm. Again, that's great. So, um. Our con so I guess in California, it's not. Um, I guess people, uh, uh, medical facilities behind bars can can give prisoners condoms. It's no. not against the law. No, no, it's against the law. It's, it's against the law. But you, they don't oh. have sex in jail or prison. Oh, that's that's nationwide. That's, that's nationwide. That's the Oh my gosh! Oh my goodness! So, so that there's a but there have been machine. demonstrated places again, like San Francisco and yeah. some other places I can't name that have proven that the putting condoms, giving inmates condoms, lowers the HIV transmission rate. So even with that proof, yeah, you know these entities still refuse to do the right thing. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Uh, yeah. So talk about the International um, uh, AIDS, HIV AIDS Conference that's coming up this month, and you're going to be flying to D.C. or flying to another place and taking a train to D.C., and there's going to be all this symbolism and all these different kinds of um, big events to bring attention to um, this national crisis. Um, and it's it's one of the... I think you said that um, President Obama uh, lifted the uh, the travel laws that made it so that people with HIV and AIDS could not come into our country. So anyway, talk about talk about the conference and 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 why this is such uh, a coup for America. Well, like you said, this is the 19th International AIDS Conference, and the conference started back in. Um, 1989, I think, and in 1990 was the last time that the conference was the had the ability to happen here in the United States because of the ignorance and fear back then. They put a travel ban um, ban on people with HIV coming into the country, so it no longer could happen here. And so President Obama. Um, lifted the ban and he lifted the ban last year and which made it possible to happen here so the international aid conference is where um scientists come scientists advocates from all over the world will meet up in washington dc 
and have a conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you're going to be there, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're also doing the March on Washington, which is a Keep the Promise March and Rally, bringing together thousands of AIDS advocates right in the heart of Washington, kind of simulating Martin Luther King's march. And we're asking for resources for treatment, care, and prevention, cost-effective interventions, progress achieved over the last 30 years of combating AIDS could be lost if we don't continue to fund these things. So thousands of advocates are going to march down Washington. I get a chance to cover this. Like you said, I'm, I'm being flown to actually Atlanta, Georgia, um, on the 20th, where I will meet advocates on the 21st. We'll catch a train from Atlanta, Georgia, um, me and advocates from that area into Washington, D.C., to hook up with other advocates that will be there. And, again, it's going to be over, you know, thousands of advocates marching. Wycliffe John is going to be a part of it, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, Civil Rights Leader Ambassador Andrew Young, Reverend Al Sharpton, Travis Smiley, Cornell West. So I, I'm hoping to interview all of them and capture this. And so it's going to be great. It's going to be historical. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. We're looking forward to uh, to, to reading, um, your, reading about your coverage, and, um, and you're going to be filming and yeah, this 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 could be that story that um, you know, how does one live with this disease and how does one avoid uh you know, being infected in the first place. You well, know, uh, yeah, it's all about communication and talking and having open and honest conversation. That's where we have to get to. And so the more people talk about HIV, the more people will be educated and aware of it. That's where it starts. Getting tested is the biggest one individual thing someone can do in knowing their status. People that know their status are less likely to to pass on HIV to someone else and, and more likely to be in treatment, which lowers their, their viral load, which lowers their ability to pass the disease. Right, right, yeah. And so we've been talking about Endgame for AIDS in Black America, uh, directed by Renata Simone, um, award-winning filmmaker. It's going to be uh, aired on PBS at 10 p.m. on Tuesday, July 10th, and you don't want to miss it. And check and your local all, listings. Yeah, check your local listings, and you should tell all your friends and colleagues about it it is a phenomenal film oh my goodness it is just it's just stunning and and our our guest jesse brooks uh plays a real prominent role in telling this story i'm so honored yeah yeah (laughs) wow well thank you again uh so much uh jesse for joining us and i i have this clip i'm gonna i hope i I uh, taped the right one. I'm going to play it, and you can stay on for a minute uh, if you want to talk about it afterwards. Okay. Let me play it now. Thank you, Wanda. Uh Uh-oh. Did I do the right one? Oops. I think that was the wrong clip. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, shoot. Um, I had the other one, and I wasn't certain which one it was, and I did the wrong one. Okay. Yeah, so... 
Oh, well. Um, so that is not going to work. But I will put the link for the the clip um, on the website because it's really, really interesting, the statistics that are um, are shared um, with the regards to the transmission. It's just uh, it's just uncanny. Like, really, that many black people are getting are becoming infected still? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, at this um, this World AIDS Day uh, event that um, is uh, um, profiled in this uh, uh, in in the uh, the, the early early um, scene of the film and, with Bill uh, Wilson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do, yeah. Do you know him? I do. I've met Bill Wilson a couple of times now, and he'll be at the International AIDS Conference. He's actually one of the main speakers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Were you aware of those numbers? I mean, it was like, it was, oh, yeah. I could hardly believe it. It's like, I mean, what? The numbers are just um, mind-blowing, period. Like you said, um, 12.5, black people make up 12.5% uh, of the population here in the U.S., but each year we make up over half of 56,000 transmissions. Mm-hmm. And that's divided between black men, black women, black youth. Black women are starting to become one of the highest um, com- communities of HIV transmissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. So everyone certainly needs to tune in to Endgame. And, um, and I want to thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us uh, to talk about the film and, and your work and uh yeah, looking forward to um to hearing from you after you um you know, your historic march on Washington, um awesome. two thousand twelve and and uh coverage of the International AIDS Conference, the nineteenth, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, nineteenth and um uh, really happy that it's back um here in this country and the president you mentioned is going to be um at the plenary, uh at the opening of the conference, right? Well, they invited him. I don't think he's confirmed as I'm reading news as okay. of yet. So it'll be a big surprise and a big honor if he does open mm-hmm. up the opening day. Right, yeah. Well, we uh, we hope he'll be able to fit it into his schedule because it's important. And, um, and, you know, when the president appears um, at something as significant as the International AIDS Conference, that, that sends a... Uh, a real strong message uh, to the American people and to the world community. So, um, well, he's actually did a lot towards HIV since being in office, like lifting the ban. But he's also created the first HIV and AIDS strategy um, plan that the United States ever had. Oh, well, tell us about that. Well, it's it's. Um, 10-year strategy plan, and I'm not prepared to really talk about it, so um, (laughs) I'll kind of summarize what I know about it. So there's different, there's like three um, specific goals to reach by a certain year, and I think it's like 2015, is like to have half of the transmission rates in certain populations now. And actually, through his guidance and through the committees that he's created, we're actually achieving those numbers. Mm. Oh, that's excellent. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but it still would be nice if he if he's able to make it. Yeah. 
to the uh, to the conference. I mean, we know he can't be everywhere, um, particularly during an election year. But it'd be great if he shows up. Um, and uh, definitely looking forward to uh, to your film. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, you take good care and you have a great day. You too, Wanda. Thank right. you. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Bye. Bye bye. So we're going to play uh, this piece um, uh, from African Tapestry, Prayer for a Continent, and then we're going to shift into an interview with uh, uh, Rochelle Farrell, who is actually at Yoshi's in San Francisco this weekend. And, uh, yeah, I've got a couple of tickets for... uh, uh, a lucky guest who can uh, send me a message uh, at wandaspicks.com and uh, or you can send me a message at the radio show um, blog talk radio forward slash wandas hyphen picks alrighty so here is African Tapestry Prayer for a Continent and that's um Baba
That was Babatunde Lee from his latest uh, CD, a double CD at that. Um, this uh, interview with Rochelle Farrell uh, was definitely a journey, as as her fans know, uh, any experience with her is. And this interview was conducted last year when she was appearing at the Raz Room. Um, and uh, uh, it's really funny, um, the publicist at the Raz Room at that time is now the publicist for uh, San Francisco Yoshi's, uh, Yoshi's in San Francisco. So, um, <laughs> so Lisa Bautista um, is referenced, and uh, uh, it's really funny, and uh, it's, it's still current. <laughs> Her CD is not out yet that uh, she mentions on the air, and we sort of just start right in the middle of the conversation. I am telling Ms. Farrell how much I really love her work and how I have been trying to talk to her for many years and uh, so happy that, you know, we finally got a chance to have this long, long conversation, uh, definitely. And she brings uh, into the conversation one of her mentors. Uh, but we're not going to be able to get to that, I'm sure, because this, um, this particular interview goes for a bit. But she's um, opening at Yoshi's uh, tonight in San Francisco, and there is a great conversation with uh, Joe Sam, artist Joe Sam, and um, uh, and and one of my favorite journalists. Um, and uh, and I was just thinking, if that's going to be happening at the, um, uh, that's going to be taking place in the Heritage Center. So it's sort of perfect. Works out really perfectly. The conversation between. Um, Joe Sam and Belva Davis. Um, Belva Davis is a journalist, and she has a book just came out, I believe last year, Never in My Wildest Dreams, A Black Woman's Life in Journalism. And it's a really wonderful, wonderful read. And so they're going to be talking, and so that's right next door. So you could actually go to the talk and then uh, hang out and go see Rochelle Farrell afterwards. So it just works out just perfectly. And then the Fillmore Jazz Festival also kicks off this weekend, and that's going to be really cool. Um, Then uh, Spearman, I believe, Quartet is going to be performing, among others, and it's a free, free event on Saturday and Sunday uh, up and down Fillmore all kinds of great music. So it's going to really be fabulous. So you should definitely check that out. So here's Rochelle Farrell. I'm going to play a little bit of that interview. Um, way more than I think I even recognize sometimes. Hmm. Remember he said, never, ever, ever give up? <laughs> <laughs> this is going World War II. I'm in history books. Mm-hmm when, you know, they were in the thick of it and in the throes of, you know, salvation and suffering and rationing and war and, you know, the threatening, you know, takeover of this, this regime that was, you know, against all humanity, basically, except mm-hmm. for the one that they deemed to be human. And they had to fight, you know, against that. And it didn't look, you know, it wasn't looking too good. Mm-hmm. And Winston Churchill, you know, I think he came on the radio or something and, you know, addressed the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, and he, you know, of course, he was the Prime Minister of England. And he said, never, ever, ever, and I might mess it up, 
and I don't remember whether it was give up or give in. You can probably Google that to see because it's a very famous quote. But right. Mm-hmm. With, with the Rochelle Farrell paraphrase. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no, but some things are worth waiting for, and I just yes. said to myself, I can wait. I'm going to keep on asking. And Lisa at the Razz Room, she is such a wonderful woman. Uh, and she, whenever she can, she gives me access because the person I spoke to before you called is, um, you know, Beverly Lee of the Shirelles. And I'm like, you know, that's like the first girl group, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. And, yes. and I've spoken to Nancy Wilson wow. numerous times. I mean, so it's like, okay. I don't get access, but then I get access. It's just, it's it's not consistent. <laughs> not consistent. But maybe mm-hmm. when you pull back on it and see, mm-hmm. you know, get a, a broader aperture of who it is that you're gaining access to, mm-hmm. maybe there's another story to be told there, you know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. another picture. Yes, definitely. Because, you, know, you know, when you zoom out on something, it looks one way, and you zoom in on something, it looks a whole other way altogether different. Mm-hmm. That's that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Yeah. So um, I want to tape this, okay? Okay, sure. All right. And Lisa seems like to be a, a really wonderful person, and mm-hmm. very rarely do I, you know, get that sense for people like this through email because it's, it's so one-dimensional. Right. With mm-hmm. her spirit, her energy, her, her beauty just kind of like, you know, her humanity seems to just jump off the screen at you. <laughs> I can't wait to meet her. Yeah, she's, she's yeah, I mean, in person, she's just as great as her emails wow. <laughs> and her phone conversations. She's a wonderful woman and a uh, great publicist because, you know, sometimes uh, it's about the business, but for her, it's, it's more yeah. than the business. She really loves what she does. She really loves okay. the music and loves the artists that they bring in. And, and, you, and, and from everything that I've ever read, you know, from artists that have been booked there, you know, since Lisa has had her tenure, it's always a good experience, and they always come back. Excellent. And how long has she been there? Um, I think Lisa's been there. Mm, seems like maybe two years or so. She's she's kind of kind of recent. Yeah, she hasn't oh, been cool. there a long, long time. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. she's still jazzed about the whole process, <laughs> the whole idea. It's not old hat to her yet. Oh, I don't know. I don't think for Lisa. I don't think it's ever going to get old hat. I think you know when it becomes <laughs> old hat, she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't want things to become old hat. You want them to be fresh and fun, just like you. Yeah. You know, keep yeah. on like those standards that you, you know, invigorate with your fresh perspectives on yeah. and all your music that you've created. And that's right. Mm-hmm. No matter how many times you do that same old song, <laughs> it's going to be a brand new situation because the moment is always brand new. Right, right. Yeah, and I, you know, I just, I don't know. You probably know when when you come to town. There are these people that are like, you know, Rochelle Farrell's like Rochelle Farrell Church. You know, they they come. <laughs> oh yeah, she's she's coming in. You know, it's not like you know how you put up the tents, right? You know, when they have the um the big. Oh yeah, seriously, people buy these buy your whole like if you're gonna be there for three days, they get the whole series. <laughs> and they and they and they and they bring their <laughs> they bring their literature <laughs> and they bring their ointments <laughs> and their paraphernalia. Oh, totally, yes, yes. And they just wait for you to just lay hands on them, right? <laughs> Oh, I've never really heard it put that way, 
London, so thank you. Oh, well, you're not sitting next to them. You're on the stage. I'm sitting next to the folks in the congregation. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause I know whole families. Like I remember one one uh, evening, uh, one Sunday evening, early show. There was a father, and he's a minister, and his daughter, and his wife, and their children. I mean, the whole wow. yeah. It's like a family affair. The last time you came through, I think it was May Day. Uh, I came to see you. At, I think it was a nine o'clock show. They might have added a show because you had sold out your run. Okay. And and I, I treated a friend of mine who is a member of the well she actually works for California Coalition for Women Prisoners and I'm on the board there and I just felt you know it would be really wonderful for her you know to sort of like experience you because of the kind of work that she does and the kind of life experience she, she has had because she's actually a formerly incarcerated woman herself and she's been like many many years in preside and had her children taken from her and yeah, adopted out and it's been like a real ordeal and she's just a wonderful woman and she really enjoyed you uh and uh oh yeah yeah she really did mm-hmm. that's good that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Listen, before we even get any further into the the interview, yes, um, I am so interested in um, this has been a, a dream of mine since I was a young woman. I used to go into the prisons with Grover oh. Washington, Grover Washington Jr. in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, really? Yes, nice. And he had the contact, and you know, I just you know he just. Would he, the folks would just call me and I'd show up. So I knew nothing about it. I was so young at the time. Mm-hmm. All I knew was saying, you know, after they came it off. <laughs> but for years I've been interested in creating some type of, I don't know, nonprofit organization or some type of something mm-hmm. that would allow me um, access into the prisons. Um, the, the, the men's prison too, but... I'm focusing mainly on the women's prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because that evening I didn't get a chance to come backstage, you know, uh-huh. those those guards again. <laughs> but I, I actually brought a brochure for you, and I put a note on it uh, about our organization, California Coalition mm-hmm. for Women Prisoners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I sent it back to you, but maybe I'm sure you didn't get it because we're having this conversation. Um, How about that? Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, and and it's so interesting because next week, uh, October 14th, is the uh, the 15th anniversary of a, a newsletter uh, created and published, and with the writings of women and by women who are incarcerated. It's called The Fire Inside, and Angela Davis is actually on this inaugural year. She gave the keynote, and on the 15th anniversary, she's given the keynote at the Women's Building in San Francisco. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely um, after we, you know, um, are not taping anymore, I'll uh, get your mailing address, and I'll send you uh, information. I'll send you uh, the information about the newsletter and put you on the mailing list and send you a link to the website for um, California College for Women Prisoners because the women would just love to have you come in. You know now, because of what's going on in California, they're actually shutting down one of the women's prisons. It's called Valley State. And uh, and they're going to be shifting them around because they need to make more space for men. So really? yeah, these two these two prisons in in uh, Central Valley, uh, Chowchilla, almost face each other. There's one um, uh, there's one prison has a skilled nursing facility. Um, 
what's the Central California Women's Facility, uh, CCWF, and then the other one, Valley State. That's the one they're going to shut down. And we don't. And the women, they don't know where they're going. Um, but yeah, that's instead of just releasing some of these women um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. and releasing some of the men too to make more. Yeah, yeah that, that's not yeah. happening. Just like we're going to just shift them and put them somewhere else. No, because yeah. if they do that, then their 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 whole economy, their whole micro economy, you know, will will you know be shifted and and and, and shrink away. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they gotta keep keep themselves in the job now. Come on. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. The system's gotta keep the system in the, you know <laughs> afloat first and foremost. Mhm. Oh yeah, there's big money, big yeah, money yeah. in the uh, prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Oh wow! Wow! Oh. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, so definitely we can come back to that, and um, I'll give you the information because cause we, we um, definitely could facilitate that, our organization. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited now. <laughs> oh, well, I am too because I want to be in the house when uh, when you go visit the women. That's going to be really cool. <laughs> yeah, because we also, you know, work with the young women because there are so many young young people that are being um, sentenced to 25 years to life, you know, as mm-hmm. children. You know, they, they hold them until they get to be 18, and then they try they send them to adult prisons. And there are so many children that, are like so despondent and depressed around good grief. You know, first offense, 25 years to life. Sure. Because, you know, they might have been driving the car with a boyfriend who was, you know, involved in something the girl didn't know about, and she got charged as if she did it because she was yeah. driving the car. But doesn't that go back to the harshness and the inhumanity of the pre-civil rights era? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, certainly. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, oh man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know you're out of um, uh, Pennsylvania. No, not no, not Pennsylvania. Is that correct? I'm trying to think. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And so you know Mumia's story, right? Mumia Abu Jamal. Yeah, Abu Jamal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I lost track because I've been like in a wind tunnel of my own. Mm-hmm. Is he? Did he pass? Did he make transition? No, 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 not at all. He's not that old. Um, but he has, I think, almost exhausted all of his appeals. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, because he's. He's still on death row, and uh, he keeps on, you know, his lawyers keep on, you know, trying one thing after another. But when Clinton got rid of that, he, you know, did that thing with the habeas corpus um, aspect of of the appeal process, that really sort of limited what people could do. You know, that's how Troy Davis's um, legal uh, counsel sort of hit a wall. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not up on that. Well, you know, he was just executed. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was the young man who, I think he he was convicted at 19. Uh, He was out of Georgia. And, um, yeah, and he spent, like, over 19 years incarcerated. Uh, Yeah, and... Convicted at 19. And, yeah, first first offense. And, um, yeah, and he was executed, um, hmm, two weeks ago now? Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh. Yeah. First offense. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Executed two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm just yeah. taking some notes here. Yeah, you, you probably. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying you probably. <laughs> you probably noticed on Facebook, uh, people went black for the weekend. Um, he was executed, I think. Let me see. September. Uh, was it the twenty? <clears throat> uh, 
I think it might have been, I'm not sure if it was the 21st, it might have been it might have been the twenty seventh or twenty eighth, I'm not sure exactly. But then we went we uh it's sort of like a a show of solidarity. Uh on Facebook everyone took their pictures and they went black for the whole weekend. So if you got it so if you got Facebook friends or if you know, and you saw the black space, black uh picture you know, I where part one guy on Facebook, girl. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. I know I'm so behind. <laughs> it's even funny. Uh, Layla took, put me on uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. and I went on there and I tweeted one time. And then when she was she was following me and saw that I had only tweeted one time in like about six to nine months, she said, "I'll do it for you." <laughs> 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 She's been tweeting from my Twitter account for me. <laughs> So I missed the whole, see, I, I, this is more proof and evidence that I need to get on Facebook and kind of re, re-assimilate just a bit into the world, because I had to withdraw mm-hmm. from the world, um, and that began around 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as an artist, one has to be completely wide open and vulnerable to everything, right? Yes. In order to take in all of this information, all this energy, um, synthesize, digest it, synthesize it, and bring it, get it back out as music. You know what I mean? It's, it's like emotional, spiritual alchemy. Mm-hmm. And as things started to speed up uh, in terms of pace, technology, you know, you know, technology sped up the pace of things. That life was already fast enough as it was. Right. You remember how fast it moved when we had pages? <laughs> oh yeah. Mhm. You had a pager on your hip, and every time that thing went off, you had to go find a phone. But now they made it even faster because they put the phone in your hand. So now you're always one is always mm-hmm. available. Right. Well, it, you know the expectation is to be always available for yet ever, and that could be soup to nuts. Mhm. And and. I had to, like, starting in 2002, between that and, you know, personal issues with family members who, you know, at this point is the same. Back then, like 10 years ago, I felt like an anomaly and, like, I was, you know, odd man out and that I had some type of scarlet letter on me. But now it's it's de rigueur with artists and people who, you know, are in the find themselves coming into the public eye. I remember reading an article in Essence about... Uh, uh, the sister that won the Academy Award who is from Baltimore and has her own late night talk show I can't call her name right now mm-hmm. um, uh, she played in, uh, in the, the film Precious oh yeah oh you're talking about um, uh, Monique Monique yes yeah yeah Monique. I heard I heard does she still have her show? Because I heard they stopped some of her stuff. Um, I'm, I'm like, wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I hear people say it's a really good show. I, yes. And and she did a marvelous job in the film. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I didn't hear anything about them stopping anything, but what the, my point about mm-hmm. what, what I brought her up is that she's a sister that I remember reading about maybe about, 2004, 2005, in Essence magazine, mm-hmm. about how this, she was the first sister that I remember reading about that spoke openly about how the expectations of family and behavior of family changes mm-hmm. when you begin to make a little money and you begin to you know come into public eye and 
you know, perception about who you are begins to change. Um, and I thought that was a really bold, brave, and courageous thing to do. Mm-hmm. And this was back in 0405, maybe. Now, in 2011, it's, it's commonplace with Fantasia and many other artists who come out and, you know, do reality TV shows. And people can see for themselves now, you know, this dynamic, this personal dynamic of the artists being loved and adored and respected and, you know, advocated for in public and then in personal and private lives. Family members are at, the, at each other's throat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to claim what's theirs or a piece of the pie, you know, based upon some, you know, familial sense of entitlement, you know, or some genetic sense of entitlement. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. That coupled with, you know, the this, this speeding up of the, of the pace of life, it, had, it meant that I had to do something very different, and that was I had to slow down. Mm-hmm. and withdraw, you know, myself from, you know, society, from life, from the thick of it, so to speak. I, you know, my, you know, metaphor for it is I took my helmet off and got in the bleachers. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. You sat out there with the congregation. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I yeah. had to. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was all getting to be too much. And one thing, I just really have a, you know, an adverse reaction to. I just really have a pet peeve about, and that's being a statistic. And I know I'm a statistic in many different areas, but I just, I don't need to know I'm being a statistic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got, I got rid of, you know, rather than going the way of drugs and alcohol and, you know, self anesthesia, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be through drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, yada, 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 or even, you know, material things, I, I got, you know, I went through a, a situation where I ended up without a television. And so I never bothered to replace it for, like, six years. Mm-hmm. And I got my news from the Internet um, and from from other sources, you know, I, that was when I began to make it a point of getting my news from overseas. Because mm-hmm. I just found, just um, innocently and obliquely enough, I found that, that that information came without a slant more often than not. You know, and it, I could just get the pure information. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, I, I was reading like a fiend back then, and I miss that now, but... It was a way for me to put on the brakes. Uh, it was the only way I could think of it could find to put on the brakes. You know what I mean? When you find yourself traveling too fast and there are no um, conventional brakes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I had to, you know, think out of the box and come up with a creative solution or at least, uh, if not solution, a creative way to mitigate what was happening. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I think you might call that sustainability, right? Absolutely, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, you know, we think about sustaining the planet, and, you know, we've got to sustain our planet, which is our body <laughs> and our soul and our spirit and our mind. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's great when one can step out of the turmoil and, and be still. And, yes. re- and so that you can regroup and, you know, create more more music. And you mentioned mm-hmm. when I saw you last that you were working on an album that you had just 
um, recording, you were talking about the sessions you had with those wonderful musicians that were on stage with you, and you would give us, you know, a song that you, you know, didn't have a name for yet. Uh, <laughs> that that's probably going to make it to the album. So how how is that project coming along? Did you finish it? I didn't finish it yet, but I'm very close. I'm about eighty percent done. Nice. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited about it. I still don't have a name for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I'm getting close. I'm tossing around a couple of different song titles as names, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of living with that idea to see which you know which feels right. It's almost like I put myself in the, I guess, I don't know what the space is, whether it's the shoes or the mental, psycho, emotional consciousness or spirit of, you know, the, my contemporaries in the society and the world in which I live now. And, you know, those who would like my music and, and, and those who live with my music and try to feel what it, what it is that they would want to call this project and how they would feel about the project. And so what, you know, that entails trying to intuit what the project sounds like, feels like, in terms mm-hmm. of the title. What would it sound like on, coming off your, 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 your lips, your tongue, the title of this project, in terms of the, 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 not only the aural sound of it, but the name of it and how it would feel, what kind of feelings would you connect with it? Mm. So that's where I am with it. Yeah. You know, what best speaks of, the totality of this project and, and what it means, not only to my family, which is my audience, my listeners, but to me, mm-hmm. and and what it, what kind of texture and contour and timbre and taste does it have? You know, what do we need to call it? It's almost like naming a child. Mm-hmm. And yeah. what do I want it to grow into? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you know with um. Uh, Khalil Gibran, you know, when, you know, the the parents are like the uh the bow and 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 so yeah. in this instance, you know, you're the bow and the song and the yeah. the project is the arrow and you know, you wanna make sure that you prepare it well to, to when it leaves you. Right. <laughs> so once it leaves, ain't nothing you can do. That's right, you can't call it back, that's true. Ah. <laughs> mhm. Now just prepare it well. Girl, you just hit the nail on the head. I used a whole bunch of words, and you just summed it up so beautifully. I've been waiting a long time to talk to you. <laughs> so, you know, I've been, well, you know. Well, we're in the midst now. In, yes, we're here now, but now is the time and the moment, and mm-hmm. we're enjoying it. I know I am. Oh, this is so <laughs> lovely, right. You know, when you were talking about, you know, needing a, you know some time to be still and to sort of yes. step out of, the um, I guess almost like chaos because yes. things are just spinning. Yeah, right. yeah, definitely. Um, and then and then also when you were, it sort of reminded me of how you know you started out running. I mean I can't imagine you know you're you're singing in, in the second grade you know six six years old and and then and then you've got a six. Uh, a six and change octave range, and then you you go to you go to you know Berkeley's uh, College of Music, and you finish in one year. I'm like, how do you how do you finish college in one year? That's like, wow, was that a record or what? <laughs> well, the first thing is uh, <laughs> don't believe everything you read. Okay, I read it a few places though. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, nowadays, yeah, how you've taken time to actually wait for the moment, the opportune moment to mm-hmm. be, 
you know, to connect with, with me and, and in spite of everything that you, all the information that you have gleaned from all of your different sources, mm-hmm. you're, you're actually getting, you know, now first-hand information from the horse's mouth. Oh, totally. I'd love for you to correct okay. that. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. people, now I ain't trying to correct it because you, you already are in the process. Some folks who happen to do what you do mm-hmm. and notice my choice of words. Yes. Who happen to do what you do. For whatever reason, obviously it ain't, you know, everybody ain't going to say everything for the same reason. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily care about facts hmm. or getting the facts straight. Just like some musicians don't necessarily care about singing in tune or playing in tune, you know what I mean? As long as they play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that information of finishing college in a year is incorrect. Okay. And people like to say stuff like that because... That's how you get built up to be bigger than who you are. Mm-hmm. And then when you show up, people look at you and just say, is that all <laughs> is that, I mean, you're so, and I've had people tell me this one, you're shorter than I thought you were. You look bigger on TV. You'd be surprised what, folks, what comes out of folks' mouths. Mm-hmm. So let's <laughs> kind of <laughs> put a pin in that balloon right now. Okay. I'm not college in one year. Okay. Um, I did. I only went to college for one year, but I did do two years worth of work. Mm-hmm. But I had to come out because I couldn't afford to um, continue to pay for college. Hmm. Wow! They didn't give you a full scholarship. Oh no! Oh okay. <laughs> wow, because you were like a prodigy. I mean, you were really good. I mean, you play the violin and the piano, and you sing, and you write. And you're a black woman, and there are not that many black women that do all that at 18? Uh, yeah. I think you're... You were like a treasure. The same way that you were asking the question also answers the question oh, why. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. You understand. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Don't make me go there. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that was back in, what, 79, too? Mm-hmm. You know, and I had some really strong advocates in the way of my violin teacher, Margaretta Wolf, who taught me classical violin from third grade up through high school and through um, Carmen Culp, who was my junior high school um, music teacher. Excuse me. And she happened to also be a vocalist herself, mm. and so she was tuned into voices and all things vocal. Mm-hmm. And so when she was testing the kids in seventh grade for their range to figure out if they were soprano, alto, tenor, or bass, you know, everybody had to sing, a, you know, sing the scale as far as they could. And that's how she discovered, and me too, that I had a range. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't tell her no. She, you know, I kept going when, you know, she, she said, just follow me at the piano and sing the, you know, sing the scale. Mm-hmm. And all the kids were, la, 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 la. We were, you know, fidgeting and scratching and, you know, half paying attention, all of us. Mm-hmm. But I happened to be one one of the children who was able to continue way up to the end of the piano. And, mm. you know, as, you know, everybody, the room got silent and her eyes got big. I thought I was in trouble. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I thought I'd done because, you know, at that age, life is basically black and white. You're either in trouble or you're out of trouble. <laughs> so I kept going, and I thought I was in trouble because the, the, her body language changed and the look on her face changed. And then she told me afterwards that, you know, she was really very nice, you know, 
were very sweet and, you know, very nurturing because she told she reassured me afterwards that I was not in trouble with, and she explained to me what was going on, that I had an extraordinary gift and that it was a, a very large range and that I need to, mm-hmm. you know, work with the gift. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember if they gave me an applause afterwards. I think so, but I, I don't really recall. But her name was, was Carmen Culp. Mm-hmm. And she was um, the music teacher at uh, Tradition East Town Junior High School in, uh, in you know, out in west of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. out on the main line yeah. in Pennsylvania. And she then showed, you know, began to show me breathing exercises to strengthen my, my breath control, my diaphragm. And she also immediately um, contacted her colleagues who happened to be the music teacher uh, or head of the music program at the high school and gave him a heads up that, I, you know, that I was here and I was on my way to high school. i would be there in a couple of years. Nice. I'd be there in three years. Right? Mm-hmm. So when I got to high school, Paul Vanderslice took over mm-hmm. and uh, he continued the work that Carmen Culp and, and Margretta Wolf did. And, and it just so happened that all three of them were friends. You know, the main line was really small back then. Okay. So I was, you know, I had a very strong, you know, um, agency yeah. in my music teachers and and those, you know, adults who were around me who were tuned into music and, and who had a passion for music and could tell the difference, mm-hmm. you know, of someone who just liked music and someone who had a gift. They were able to spot the gift because Lord knows I didn't know. You know, I was singing with fire, fire whistles. There was a fire engine in, in yeah. my neighborhood, and when the fire uh, fire siren would go off, you know, mm-hmm. I would run out on the front porch and try to, you know, try to copy it because it went on so long. I was like, wow. I just, I just like the way it, you know, kind of amped up in frequency, mm-hmm. and it got louder. So it was, a, you know, it was a continual uh, crescendo, not only in frequency but in in DB volume as well, mm-hmm. and so for whatever reason, as a child, that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I went out on a porch and tried to sing the damn thing. Wow! So you like the told me that I wasn't supposed to be able to do that. Yeah. Wow! So you like the science and the physics of it? Huh. I do. I am a nut about science and mm-hmm. physics and quantum physics. Yeah. Quantum yeah. mechanics. Mm-hmm. Girl, please. And, and most of my friends look at me and their eyes glaze over when I start talking about them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. My best friends would tell me, get out of here. She's going to cut me. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to stab me if she does. <laughs> I'm talking about those stuff, but I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I love relating the <clears throat> abstract with the concrete. Mm-hmm. Because that's essentially what I do as an artist. Yeah. It's no different. Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah. And so when I see it in other areas, other fields, I, I, I gravitate to it. I'm like, wait a minute, I want to understand this, you know, so I can understand myself and what I do better. Mm-hmm. I was in with the birds and trying to make all kinds, any kind of sound I heard, I try to make it. Because mm-hmm. also a very important fact was, a very important point was, there was no one around I was very fortunate in this, that actually ever stood, stepped up and stood out and said, you know, you ain't supposed to be singing like that. You, you're not supposed to, you know, human beings aren't supposed to sing like birds. 
You mean go? You ain't not supposed. You're not supposed to sing like a you know a fire whistle. That's not physically possible. They, you know, I guess for whatever reason they ain't pay me no money. <laughs> you know, back then kids were largely ignored anyway, unless you were doing something wrong, you know, or not doing your homework, or you can come in before the street lights are on. You know that. You know, I grew up in a time before cell phones and pagers and and you know there was like one or two phones in the house at most, and they were the old rotary dials. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when the when the princess touch push button phone came, we couldn't even afford it, so we 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 stayed with the rotary dials. <laughs> and when you know you came and came home from school, you did either did your homework right away, depending on what the rules of the house were, or you went out to play after school. And part of my play and playtime is when children learn and develop and grow, and at, at every age, from from birth right on up. And that's why I love to play and be stupid because I recognize that there's a little girl, little boy in each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. And when we stop playing, we stop learning and growing. And it's the, you know, we can learn, you know, through the didactic methods and, you know, through pressure and, you know, we do this or else or I need to get a, you know, increase my pay or whatever. But the easiest, most facile way to, to, to gather new information and to process and understand and then use it, you know, to understand it enough to apply it, it's through play, mm-hmm. you know, or the, the, the energy of play or playfulness or youthfulness. It makes it light enough where, I don't know, there's something about it that it allows us to take it in. And it's not unlike music itself. You ever notice that kids can learn anything if it's in a song? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like that pro- that process. Yeah. So, it's you know, it's something that has fascinated me for years, and it's, it's one thing that I refuse to give up is my playfulness. Mm-hmm. I tell my audience, one of my favorite things to be is being stupid. Mm-hmm. And when I say stupid, I mean playful and silly and, you know, open to the possibilities and not so full of myself that, you know, I can't step outside of my uh, perception of myself as an adult, <laughs> that everyone must take seriously. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, a few few things came to mind. I was just gonna, I just been taking notes. So, okay. Yeah, so um, I was just thinking back on on your first your your debut um, CD, first instrument, and mm-hmm. and what you said um, about translating the words into emotion. And then I was thinking about some of Octavia Butler, you know, the the wonderful science fiction writer. And one of her characters, I don't know which book it is, but I really love that character because what that character would do is, and there was a name for it, she could take the pain out of someone and into her body and she would feel it. Uh, But she had greater capacity for the pain than they did. So when she took it into her body, you know, so if they had sores, she'd get the sores. And if they had something wrong, she would get that too. But her body was equipped in such a way that she could repair herself. I mean, she felt it all. It was, like, really excruciating and hurt. But the healing was possible, and it took a minute, but she would end up being okay again. And the person that she took the pain or the uh, illness from, they will be well instantly. And I thought wow. that was, yeah, so what she'd have to do is sometimes she'd have to turn off 
turn off that that um, sensory perception of herself because yeah. she'd always be in pain because everybody's hurting. Right, all the time. And I just thought, wow, that is so, Octavia Butler was so, like she should be a saint or something, shouldn't she? Wanda, listen, let me just tell you this. Mm. I have to, let me see, let me look at my time, because we won't have to, I'm not calling you back. I'm going to have to call you back. We've got to stay in touch with one another because be there's so much, you know, that I want to share and that I know that you want, I feel that you want to share, and there's so much that we have in common as a connection here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of, you know, we obviously have to get, I'm going to give you what you need. We have to get what you need for your interview. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, and I'm saying this now because I don't want to, you know, divert into the space that I feel myself pulling, you know, pull, feel something inside me pulling to go. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, in my spirit, I'm like pulling you by the hand. I'm like, come on, let's go out and play. You know what I mean? Right, yes. You know, let's get off this phone or run out in the, in the, in the grass and just sit and talk and play. But I know we got to take care of our business. Right. So I just wanted to put that on the table. Two things now, and, mm-hmm. and one is that are just like, huge and resonant in my spirit and in my heart. You've mentioned Khalil Gibran, mm-hmm. and I mentioned Khalil Gibran on Monday mm-hmm. to a, a man that I met uh, in first class on the flight back from Philadelphia. He didn't know who, I believe this was, I may be messing it up, but just within the last few days I mentioned Khalil Gibran and the, and the beauty of his poetry and his work and how, you know, oh, this is my best friend, Queen Gina. Uh, I, I shared with she and her husband that our children come through us. Mm-hmm. They do not belong to us. They are not our possessions. They come through us. Right. And so I don't really know too many people who even know about Khalil Gibran at this point. Really? You know, in the age of video games uh-huh. and Madden mm-hmm. and, you know, reality t- TV shows and, you know what I mean, about that. Remember I was talking about the pace and the speed of life? I don't yeah. really know a whole lot of folks who take time to read books right now, let alone know about Khalil Gibran, so that's a huge salient, you know, orb that's resonating energy right there. And then the other thing is my girl. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I'm like a holler in your ear. Oh, yes. I love Octavia Butler. Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm wondering, if what you described, is that wild seed? And then we're going to get back to the interview. Oh, it I could be. It could be. I don't know, because I read them all, except for her, okay. the one about the vampire. I haven't, haven't read that one yet, the last one. Okay. But I read, but I read, I've read them all, and so I don't remember. Cause that sounds like wild seed. It could be wild seed. It's the one about the woman that lives yeah, going back in town, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. you know. Antebellum time mm-hmm. era. Yeah, and then she's got the trilogy where you know we destroy the planet and we gotta connect with these uh, these uh, other beings. No, that's that's before that. You know, she has uh, those three those three books, and they're all about this this um, these creatures, and they can't reproduce, and they need us to reproduce, and we need them to have somewhere to live. Wow. I don't remember those that series. I thought it was the Parable of the Sower. No, that's after this. The Parable okay. of the Sower is, is more. It's more. It's be, she wrote the others before the Parable of the Sower. Okay. Yeah, parable, okay. I love the Parable of the Sower and the Parable of the Talents. Oh my God, that's like a Bible. <laughs> <laughs> What's the second one? The Parable of the what? The Talents. Talents. That's right. Mm-hmm. I gotta get. I gotta see. <laughs> I missed a couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just. Oh, she's fantastic. But then also, I was thinking. Um, as you were talking about, when you were talking about some people don't even sing in tune, that they're, um, 
there's a film. This is the Mill Valley Film Festival. It just started yesterday in Mill Valley and in San Rafael. And there's a film about Ali Akbar Khan. Mm-hmm. And and he he moved here um, from India and established um, a school. And his son um, Alam Khan is sort of care, continue the tradition and his teaching in the school. And you know his brother is too. And this film sort of looks looks at Ali Akbar Khan's um, family and the arc of his work and who he's collaborated with people like John Handy and Mickey Hart and how he brought in Zakir Hussein as his percussionist when he was really young and um, and uh, and the reason why I'm bringing him up is because he said he would say because they had footage of him talking about how important it is to sing in tune. That's more important than everything. Because singing in tune is like tuning your soul to the right right. frequency. And Yeah, and I was like, I I wanted to tell you that. Um, (laughs) uh, Wow. Yeah. And then another thing, uh, and I know, you know, this has been a long talk conversation, but another thing is that I had another interview with a director who um, who has been in love with um, uh, Joseph... um, Campbell, you know, the myth man, for a long time, and talking about the journey, yeah, and the film is, yeah, and the film is called Finding Joe, and it's opening here in the Bay Area, I think at the end of this month, so I'm sure it's going to be in L.A. somewhere, because L.A. is where everything happens, and the filmmaker lives in Venice Beach, so he's down near way, um, and, and so, and so when I was watching that film, and, you know, he's talking about the hero's journey and about how, you know, you look for these dragons and then you end up finding out that there is no external dragon. The dragon's inside and you really need to not slay the dragon but embrace the dragon and see what it is that the dragon represents. And then you go back home to your community.